Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 356. This program is dedicated in loving memory of Ben Sian Beryl, Ben Moshe Feivel, and Rachel Cyril Keller. Yarsait and Chof Aleph, the 21st of Sivan. May his neshama be a source of blessing to his family, to the entire community, to the entire world. And may it only bring good and healthy years to all his family. I also want to read a special note that I received asking that I announce the following. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I'm an avid viewer of your amazing Sunday night program. May I ask a favor, please? My mom is very ill. Can you please announce her name, Tzioyna Zelda Yehudis Bas Hana, and ask your viewers to say Tehillim for her to have a refuah and increase in acts of goodness and kindness for her benefit and for the benefit of anyone in the community that needs a refuah. Thank you. So, of course, we use an opportunity like this, a special request to say Tehillim, for Tzioyna Zelda Yehudis Bas Hana for a complete and speedy Rufur Shlema. And uh, may we only hear good news and blessings for each and every one of us. And finally, an end to all challenges and all difficulties and all losses with the Gula Hamitis Vashlema, especially in the merit of Yefutzamay Nesach Chutza, which is essentially the objective of this program, my life chassidus applied, applying teda chassidus to our personal lives, which includes, of course, chutzah. It means, means many things. It means the outskirts, the outer limits, both physically, spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally. With that, we are now entering the week of shlach, Pasha shlach, the fourth chapter in the book of Numbers and the, f- the fourth chapter in the fourth book of the Teda. So we'll talk about chassidus applied to shlach and uh, addressing also many questions that are coming in, continue to come in. I feel bad because I can't keep up with the questions, to be honest. I don't know if bad is the right word, but I definitely feel frustrated a bit. I've thought a few times to maybe make a few special programs just to, fit, just to catch up with the questions. I don't know if that makes sense because I may not catch up anyway. So I just wanted to share that. But please do not hesitate from asking. Your questions will be addressed. I try to focus on timely matters like we were dealing, unfortunately, with the, with the COVID or we're dealing with the Iran tragedy, the attacks in Israel, and, of course, the weekly parship. But all questions will be addressed, and I continue to work through them. So please use this opportunity well. Go to chassidusapply.com. There's a forum where you can submit your question, comment. Everything is acceptable. Nothing is off limits or taboo, which has been the, the trademark of this program. And I will try to attempt, and I will attempt to try to answer the questions as best of my ability. Okay. So let's start with Shlach, since it's Pasha Shlach, living with the times. As the Alter Rebbe said, so though for many people the times means 
the newspaper or other so-called news items of the time. Yes, that's what's happening right now on a physical level in the here and now. But what's truly happening behind the scenes? What, what, what true energy is in the air? What vibes? That's the Pastor Shoshavu, Lebanon site. And there you get the insight and direction, not just what's happening out there, but also how to interpret it and how to understand it in a deeper way, in a personal way. Because it's one thing knowing the facts and knowing the news, knowing the commentary. It's another understanding its relevance and significance to our lives and helping us fulfill the mission of our lives. So, using the word mission, shlach means mission. Shlach l'cha noshim. Hashem, God, commands Moshe Rabbeinu, send to you anoshim, distinguished individuals, at the time they were kosher, they were pure, intent, and shlach l'cha. What's l'cha? Says Rashi, from the Medrash, why not just shlach l'cha, shlach anoshim, send people, as, as God always commands Moshe to do things. Because I'm not commanding you, he says, shlach l'cha l'daytacha. Do it at your own volition, at your own initiative. The Rebbe asks the question, what does that mean? Moshe should have immediately been suspicious. Everywhere else it says, God tells Moshe to do this, to do that. It doesn't say, do it at your initiative. In other words, you think, think it through and decide whether you want to do it. And on the other hand, it says that itself is also a command. So did God tell him to send or did not tell him to send? So the Rebbe emphasizes, similar to the theme in Baalescha last week, that there are things that have to be done because God says so, and there are things that we need to internalize and make sure it's also l'daytacha. So God is telling him, here is an opportunity to send these scouts, as the Ramban explains, to do what? To check out, to scout out the best entries when you go into a land, especially with people there that are declared enemies. You need to scout out and see What's, what's the man made of? The strength of the land, where their fortresses, where are the best ways to enter. So technically speaking, from Hashem's point of view, I told you to go to the promised land. But you also need that you should strategize and figure out how best to do that. And that's why you send scouts. So all focus is also on the initiative of Moshe Rabbeinu, of the human being. That we don't just send shlach, when you send a messenger, also make sure you empower that you that make make sure that when you're sending that when you're sending the messenger, also make sure that you're doing it in a way that you understand best. It's like empowering Moshe to use his own resources, his own faculties to align them to what God wants. That's the short of it. But of course, it did not turn out exactly as planned. They came back with a bad report, and that's where all the problems began. Is the first Tishabov because they made the Jews cry that we cannot conquer this land. It's a land that consumes its inhabitants. And they brought proof, these, these uh, enormous fruits and grapes and all different things, saying they're giants, they're too powerful for us. Essentially causing the Jews to want to remain in the wilderness. And that was the great sin. What was the great sin? Is the first question that's asked. What did the Maraglim do wrong? So let's read inside the question someone wrote. We are taught that we are not supposed to rely on miracles and must live accordingly within the parameters of the physical world we are in. So what did the Maraglim do wrong? What did the scouts do wrong? That's what they did. They went. You asked us to give a report. You didn't ask us to subjectively shift the report. You wanted an objective picture of what's happening. So we gave you an objective picture. 
They saw giant strong warriors and other serious challenges in conquering Eretz Yisrael, or Eretz Canaan, the land of Canaan, and reported truthfully on what they saw in the physical world. And without relying on miracles to help conquer their land, they gave their military opinions that the conquest would be very difficult or impossible. Another person puts it this way. If the, if the, if the, if the Miragam are giving their assessment of the challenges of conquering Eretz Canaan based on their understanding of science, nature, and warfare, but their error was not having faith in God that we could overcome these challenges and succeed with God's help, does that have any similarity to those in the community who, based on their understanding of science and medicine, say we have to all wear masks and social distance, but was the communal response to avoid also a lack of faith in God and his healing powers? And if not, then what exactly did the Miraglim do wrong? Okay, so he applies it to our situation as well. Well, the key word is here, how and not whether. Let me explain. The Miraglim were charged to figure out how to enter the land. They were never asked their opinion whether we can do it or not. This is true in many scenarios. Let's say even Lahavdal in business. So someone's appointed to do research, to do market research. He's not asked whether, whether, or the conclusions, whether we can pr- launch a new product. You're asked how to do it best. Now you may have an opinion it can be done, but that, that was not your job. The Miraglim were never asked. God had already promised that the Jews would go to the Promised Land many, many years ago, more before the Miraglim were born. That was not their job. They stepped, they crossed, they stepped over their authority and boundaries. Had they just come back and said, there are large fruits, and here there are strong people, and here there are strongholds and fortresses, and so on, and that's it. That's what they were asked to do. Then the decision would have to be how to do it. But it was never a question of whether. It would be like someone saying to God, life is too difficult. I can't do it. And God forbid, do something to themselves that compromises their life. We were not asked whether we should come to this world. We were, asked how, we were only asked to figure out how to implement our mission in life. So, and that one different shift is the change of every, changes everything. Because it also is empowering. I mean, if we were to rely on our own conclusions, many of us would give up and say it's not possible. Well, the Miragli made that mistake. It was not up to them to determine whether it's possible. It's up to them how to do it. And that's where they crossed them. Maybe they were too smart for their own good in a way. Their intentions may have been good. As Chassidus explains, they were very spiritual people. They wanted to stay in a spiritual environment. So therefore, when they saw material challenges like this, it's not for us. So it's the key, bal- the key is the balance between how to use nature and science in the words of the second writer. Obviously, that's why God created nature. He wanted us to consider that. In same Chalalas, we don't rely on miracles. So we look at nature to figure out the best way to do things. But the very fact that we have to do it, the mission we're given, that's not up to our natural understanding of things. We're told to do something. There, there is the godly element in it. So nature applies to the how, not to the weather. I remember once writing an article, an event we did, and it was a bad weather. So I said, we don't control the weather. We only control the how. Now, weather, of course, can mean weather, bad weather, or weather can mean whether to do it or not to do it. That we don't control. That's not up to us. It's how to do it.
And that's where there's the perfect partnership between God telling us what to do and us figuring out how to do it and how to implement. And that was the grave sin. And now you understand what the problem was, why it was such a grave thing. Because if the Maraglim would have prevailed, God forbid, then basically they opened the door that everything we're told, you could always come back and say, I checked it out, it's not possible. How many, Jews, how many times have the Jews faced in history situations where on a natural, statistic, scientific level seem not possible? But that's not what we're made of. This story of the Maraglim actually gave us the strength to understand that even when it seems like it's impossible, or almost impossible, that's not up to us. If we were asked to do it, it means God would not ask us to do something we don't have the power to do. As the Reb emphasizes time and again in his talks and his letters, but we're still given the ability to figure out how. So when the Rebbe sent out Shluchim, talking about Shlach Lacha Anoshim, so initially, it would seem like impossible. You're coming to a place, you have no money, people don't want you there, there's no kosher, there's no chadarim uh, schools for the children, and so on. If you went with logic, you'd say it's not possible. But that was not the approach. The Rebbe said, this is what you should do. Now the question is, what you have to figure out how to do it. And you see what happened? Every shleich figured it out. Trial and error, experience. But without that initial commitment, there's always a thousand reasons why not to do something. But that's what you need. That's why we need that foundational element. So when Hashem says to Moshe, Shlach Lecha, he wanted both. I'm telling you, Shlach Lecha. I'm giving you the power, but I need your Lecha because I need you to be part of it. This is not just a, a chukah, just a command. You're part of the process. Okay. What is the significance of the giant grapes that Meraglin brought back to show the Jewish camp? Well, in different svarim, both in Apidrush, Pipshat, Apipshat, the simple interpretation, they wanted to show an example of what we're dealing with here. You see such giant grapes, it was quite awesome and quite overwhelming, frankly. Apirem is Drush and Sod, which means the different ways of interpreting Tera. There are different explanations given. The Rabbeinu Bachai brings explanations. Chassidus brings explanations. I don't want to go into all the details, but briefly, the fruits of the land are part of what the land is like. So they were demonstrating that it's not just the land is that's difficult, but also the fruits of the land. So in the context of the explanation of Kutatera that the Miraglam were looking for living a spiritual life, with such grapes, such represented that you're dealing with a materialism that's very powerful, that's very large. Now why grapes? Grapes, of course, is a fundamental fruit that, that produces wine. It also represents aggression, strength, which is why we make Kiddush on wine, to sanctify and sublimate and uh, refine the wine. And the same with each of the fruits, different explanations given. It's easy to find, if you look in the index, you start with Rabbeinu Bachai, you look in Tzamech Tzedek, Sefer Lekutim of the Tzamech Tzedek, which I had the privilege to be one of the editors of. You can also find it, if you look in the Erech Meraglim, the different explanations on these verses, what their significance is. Okay. Now, what about the issue at the end of the story with the Miraglim comes another issue. In my feeling, they were talking about those that said after they heard what happened, that the Ebersha said he wants to kill the Jewish people for what they did now, wants to take it because of this grave sin of refusing the gift that God wanted to give them, going into the promised land, and Moshe praying for them. So then there were those that took the other extreme and said, 
Let's go right now. And they began to march. And Misha said, no. Now you're not, you're not ready to go right now. So someone asked the question. When some Jews complained that they were afraid to enter Israel after the spies warned of giant guarded walls, God wanted to kill all the Jews, but Misha convinced them not to do so. Then a group who followed the spies and were remorseful, and they said, we are sorry, we made a mistake, and we really want to enter Eretz Yisrael. Moshe told them, don't, don't try to enter because, it's not with, because God is not with you. They tried anyway to enter, and a group of Amalekites killed them. Why do we even have a concept of true repentance if God wasn't willing to forgive this group after they said they were sorry? How is it possible that God isn't with his people at all times, even when he's having a bad day and in a foul mood? Kav I should add. Did the Jews in the desert... Okay, another question, sorry. Yeah. Well, the answer, if you think about it, is actually teaches us another profound personal message, so this applied message. God said, go to the promised land, but on my terms, I'm not telling you when to go. Had the Miraglim, for example, come back and went the other extreme. Oh, you know what? Let's just march into Eretz No, without God saying when to go, that's also part of the process. Because the point here is like, there's a famous explanation why in Torah it says, don't, don't add any mitzvahs and don't subtract. There's 613 mitzvahs, keep them. Don't add and don't subtract. So the obvious question is, subtract, we understand. God forbid someone would take away and subtract they're doing a mitzvah. But what's wrong with adding? That's so terrible. You're adding. You're adding more commitment to God. The Yerushalmi says about another, 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 it's enough with God forbade you. Don't add. Why? Why not? The answer is very straightforward. God gives us mitzvahs. If you suddenly become a partner in the, in the what, not in the how. So you become a partner. First you say, you know what? I want to add. Tomorrow you're a partner and say, maybe I want to subtract. There are things that are off limits. It is God's domain, how he created us, and what he gave us, he wants us to do. It's not our job not to add and not to subtract. It's how to do it in the best possible way. So when the Miraglim, when they finished, and those Jews finally had remorse for first betraying God's intention and, and speaking negatively about Eretz Yisrael, they had remorse, fine, great, you did tshuva. So now be happy and march. But march not when you want to march, when God wants you to march. Of course, the Miraglim caused that the march would take longer than expected. Going to Yisrael was not a 40-year journey. That was part of the result was, was a, because of the sin. So yes, you have remorse, God, of course God accepts your tshuva. People can make a mistake and there's tshuva, and they do tshuva. But now the tshuva doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. The tshuva means, now in a humble way, listen to what God wants. Is God with them? God is always with human beings. But we can unfortunately push God aside from us. And when we say, it's difficult for me. God says at the end of Sukkot, uh, 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 seven days, that Hashem celebrated with the Jewish people. Yismach Hashem b'maisov, Yismach Yisrael b'esov. There's a simchaz man simchaseinu. So the Medr says that now God says, now, I want, it's difficult for me to see you leave. Your separation, the exact words. So let's make a party. A suddha, one suddha that Shminyat says will be one so-called partying festival. So the question is asked, why pridaschem, pridaschem, 
Pridaschem, your separation, our separation, like a king and his child. So the Rebbe explains, asks the question, and explains, because God is never separate from us. He's always with us. But we can be separate from each other. We can determine that we don't connect with each other, and we can also determine we're not connected with God because we don't see Him. Like the famous example that God conceals Himself like a parent from a child in order for us to elicit from us the ingenuity to find our deeper resources to connect and find our Father in heaven. But sometimes God's concealment is very deep, and we give up. Famous Sikh of Tu Bishvat, Lametes, Tavshin Lametes. Rebbe crying, Sunday the child seeks, Monday the child seeks. What do you want from the child? God, the tainer should be to the Abish. The argument should be to God because you hid yourself so well. So God is always with us, but we have to be a keli to that. If we push away someone who wants to help us, or someone who's there with us, that's the challenge here. What Mesha was saying is God's not with you because you're not doing what he wants. So of course he's with you in a concealed way and in a makivitika way and all the different ways you explain it. But not on your terms. You need to make a keli. So that explains that. There was a final, one more question in this sugya, and then we'll go to the next question. And that is, is it true that the Jews in the desert dig, dug graves every year and slept in them on the ninth of Av because they thought God would kill them for rebelling along with the 12 spies. So this is a Gemara in the end of Masechta Tainus. We usually learn it around the Tisha B'Av time. Tisha B'Av, as I mentioned before, was five negative things happened. The end, the last being, of course, the destruction of the first temple and the second temple. And one was the Meraglim, that that night that they cried, that why did God take them out of Egypt? We're going to a land where we will be slaughtered because it's too powerful for us. That became, that was Tisha B'Av. And when Hashem says, you're crying, you'll have a b'chil edetis, crying for generations because of this sin. Without going into the explanation, what does that sin have to do with the destruction of the temple? But briefly, the point is, once you go away from the, you get into, this, into the category of wh- whether we can do it instead of the how, you have in a sense disconnected yourself from your mission. Your mission was to do it, just figure out how. So ultimately that would cause many problems. So as a result, yes, God has said the Jews who were part of this conspiracy, called Dibas Ha'aretz, speaking negatively about Israel, you don't want Eretz Yisrael, you don't want my promised land, you will die in this wilderness, and your children will enter. It was only Kolov and Yeshua, the two of the scouts, that did not rebel, and the contrary, they defended the mission and defended God's intention. They were the only two that entered into Israel, Kolov and Yeshua. Because they remained connected. Yeshua, Moshe prayed for him. When you're tied above, you don't fall below. And Kolov went to Chevron, to Kivrei Ovis. He went to the Marasamachpelet to pray. That gave them the additional strength not to be part of and not to succumb to the plot of the Meraglim. That's what it's called, the plot. Okay. So every year in Tishbov, because now they were told they would not survive, so they would prepare themselves. Question is, what sounds a little odd? They would dig graves. Well, in a way, they accepted their their uh, destiny, knowing it would not be them. Sadly, it would be their children. So they prepared themselves and made it so-called seamless, if you wish. I know it needs explanation why this fashion. It sounds bizarre to go dig your own grave, 
But it could be in a more deeper level, perhaps psychologically, they understood that their lives, they had in a sense forfeited their lives because their lives, the mission was to enter the promised land, to leave Egypt and enter the promised land. And once you forfeit your life, in a way, they understood that spiritually there was a certain compromise. And perhaps that was the symbolism. But regardless, it does say it in the Gemara, so that's the answer to your question. Now, moving along, following the Pasha Maraglin, there's another story, another strange story in the Torah. A man, it says, comes on Shabbos, Mekesha Shetzim, carrying wood, and, um, which is desecrating Shabbos. Moshe doesn't know what to do, so they put him, Moshe comes to Hashem what to do, and Hashem says that you have to put him to death. Chil Shabbos is put to death. Now, this is a very, one of the strange stories, in the, one of many strange stories in the Torah. And when you come down to it, you read, you learn that uh, in, indeed there are different opinions, but many hold that he was Slavchad. The Bnei Slavchad that we will learn about later are the daughters of this man Slavchad, who is a very fine and upright person. What did he do? So Teisvah's bringing from Edr says that L'Shem Shemaim Neskaven. His intention was actually for L'Shem uh, Shemaim, meaning he did it for good intentions. What were the good intentions? That after the Hashem said to the Meraglim, because of the Meraglim, that you're no longer going to Eretz Yisrael, the Jews could think they're no longer obligated to do mitzvahs. So he got up and did something and desecrated the Shabbos and demonstrated what happens. Then no, you're still obligated to do the mitzvahs. Now that just makes the question even bigger. What's going on here? What's, in there no other way to demonstrate that? He has to do something that puts him to the death penalty. So the Masha speaks about it, and he answers that the truth is he didn't desecrate Shabbos. Because Shabbos is a din, if you do something that you don't need the very object, you cut down branches for another purpose, but you don't need the very branches, that's called a malach and in one opinion, and commentaries explain all opinions, but hold, therefore, that's not Chilul Shabbos. This explanation is brought in other Svarim as well. The Kedusha Slavi from Rabbi Levi, says, so therefore he did, not, he did not desecrate the Shabbos, because he never did it for that intention. So then why was he put to death? Well, before answering that, that's why he chose that, because it wasn't about, it was because he, Shows something, and he knew he was not really desecrating. He knew what his intentions were. So why was he put to death? Because we judge by what we see. The people saw him desecrating Shabbos, the Misa. His action is what you see. His intentions don't matter in this context. The Rebbe has a sikh on this. Lukut sikh is volume 28, Shlach, page 94 and on, where he explains this whole idea. And... I highly recommend looking there. Um, the taste of this, I mentioned was Boba Basin, Kofiutes Bays, Mashal Kadusha Slevi, and also on a sikh, interesting sikh in Yud Gimel Tamus, Tovshin Tazvov, that ever brings from a Sefer Eramir from the Rav from Lublin, that talks about this as well. It was Lublin, a Chasa, they said that for bringing, so that ever mentioned the Sefer. He talks about also the Malach Hashem Sikha that everybody holds that way, and some other details that you can find all in this Sikha that I just quoted. So, this answers a question that someone asked. The pastor talks about a man who purposely gathers wood on Shabbos and incurred the death penalty. And he did it on purpose so that all the people could be warned and see that God wasn't, 
that God meant business. We were also taught that a court that executed someone once in 70 years was called a murderous court. And all the judges resigned afterward because they, resigned afterward because they were supposed to look for merits in the defendant instead of finding faults. If so, why couldn't they find merits for the Shabbos wood gatherer? Because he obviously did it as an act of Avis Yisrael. And Mr. Nefesh, we can add. And the answer is, they probably did. The best proof is in some of the Svarim it says, I think the Divrei Dovid the Rebbe brings there, Pnei Dovid from the Chidah, that that was why Moshe had a Suffolk, what to do. Moshe knew the Din. He had a Suffolk because of this reason, because he knew his intentions were pure. But the, the conclusion is, his intentions were pure, and always gets a schar for that, a reward for that, but bottom line is, he desecrated the Shabbos in action. And we don't go, we judge by what we see, not by intentions. So you have both elements here. Now, of course, the lesson to us is this what we're supposed to do to the point of putting ourselves at risk in order to save other people, to demonstrate to keep a cover on the Shem Shemaim. It's obviously not the point of death, but it does definitely demonstrate to the extent that a Jew would be ready to offer his life in order that others should understand and be connected to God. It's not something we're supposed to be doing, except in three Avedis, Koch Nefesh Dech Kula. We're always supposed to preserve life, except in the three instances of murder, incest, and uh, idolatry. But the lesson to be learned about the level of commitment he was ready to put himself on the line in order to teach the Jews a lesson to make them closer to God is a powerful lesson to all of us. Okay. And one final question about from the Pasha. Question was about tzitzis. How does attaching tzitzis strings to our four-corner garments help remind us to do mitzvahs? So first of all, Rashi says right away there that when you add up all the numbers, it adds up to 613. The chutim and the knots and the strings, it adds up, to, it reminds us of the 613 mitzvahs. The very idea, Chassidus explains, that the talus is makif, tzitzis are pnimi, so they're supposed to be of the same material but not of the same garment. In other words, you can't just leave an edge and just cut eight, string, eight, eight sections. They have to be outside of the garment and then attached. So that's the idea. First of all, mitzvah is about tzavsev echibur, attaching, just as you attach the strings. And the attaching of makif and pnimi, of the transcendent of the divine and the imminent of the divine. So the whole idea, wrapping yourself with a talus, talus cotton, talus gadol, is the idea of wrapping yourself around with God, reminding ourselves, like Kabbalah sel macho shamayim, and Kabbalah sel mitzvahs is the specifics, as, as alluded to, and indicated, when you see them, you'll remind yourself of the mitzvahs protis, not just asher kiddushan mitzvahs of is the makif, that God commanded us, that's an equalizer. Kabul malchusei, Accept my sovereignty, accept my authority. And then comes Kabul Gzeresai, Kabbalah Sel Mitzvah, that we accept the specifics as indicated in each of the strings. Each one is a separate, a separate, a separate strand, a separate um, fringe. And those are the reminders of mitzvahs, but also the connection we have with God on all levels. Okay. Good. Now, um, I covered Parsha Shlach. I do want to discuss one thing that I 
last week when I spoke in Baalescha, so someone reminded me that I asked, I asked a general question and answered it, but not the specifics. Let me just, let me just fulfill something that was not completely discussed properly last week. And I take my cue from the Rebbe, who often after Fabrengen, the next week's Fabrengen, he would say there are things that were not finished last week, and he would mashlim, complete the discussion. So the question was, do the seven types of Jews in the Mamorim of Parsha Balesha correspond to different demographic groups? The seven uh, branches of the Menorah correspond to the seven types of souls, which I discussed. But here's some more details. Hi, Rabbi. I love all your videos. Keep up the good work. My question on last week's said with Balesha was this. Chassidus speaks about the seven types of Jews that correspond to the seven candles or branches on the Menorah. Is this a reference to different demographic groups among Jews today, for example, Chesed corresponds to Chesedim, Kvorah to Mesnagdim, Netzach to Baal Tshuva. Where do Jews who are not yet observant fit in? As a Baal Tshuva became a Chesed, which category do I fit in? Is this categorization relevant practically? So I would be careful, my response, is to try to create a group that fits one or the other. What this says in Lekut Tehra is the following, that all Neshamas break into seven categories. So whether they call themselves a chassid or non-chassid or a baltruva or another category, you'll find chassid through malchus in all groups. There are people whose personality is more chassid personality. Some is more disciplined personality. Obviously, there's always a scholarless, which means interconnectivity. They all include the other, encompass the other. But they're primary features. But to understand it as groups, I would stay away from that because that tends to create stereotypes and then create groups which are really more, I would say, even separating and even divisive than unifying. Where in the Menorah, the goal was seven different diversity, but not divisive, God forbid. Diversity, yes, and that diversity exists in all groups. So I would not say that uh, Balchuva fits in a particular group or someone who's not asking about people who are Tinik Shanishba, for example. So it's like a, a Jew that's like a child in captivity and doesn't know about mitzvahs, God forbid, due to lack of education or due to their upbringing or where they grew up, to fit them in on the menorah. No, they also are one of the chesed gvurah, except it may be concealed or may be revealed in their personal lives and now we have to connect it to a menorah of a God, to be a flame of God, to be a neda Hashem Nishmasad. Since we're completing subjects that weren't completely finished in previous episodes, let me address a question that was asked two weeks ago on the Parsha Bamidbar about the flags, the flags that each tribe had its own flag. So the question was regarding their colors. Let me read the exact question. Do we have an image of the flags of the tribes? In Parsha Bamidbar it says each tribe had a nasi and also a unique colorful flag. Each one had a leader and a unique colorful flag. Do we have any of these flags preserved somewhere today? Or perhaps even a drawing so we know what they looked like. I don't think we have anything preserved, uh, but we do have a medrash, medrash rabba, bamidbar rabba, 2-7, that discusses on that verse in chapter, in uh, bamidbar, the first chapter of the book of bamidbar, that speaks exactly that. The Pasuk says, of course, it says, each man by his banner according to the insignias of their father's household. So, just briefly, the 12 tribes were divided into four groups. Each one had three tribes. So there were four banners. But as the commentary, Fei explains, 
each banner within it, the four banners had three different type of flags corresponding to each tribe. So the Medrash, in a very fascinating way, describes the details, says that these 12 flags corresponded to the 12 stones in the Choshen. These were the 12 stones that were on the heart of Aaron. This was the breastplate that had 12 different stones. And here's what the Medrash says. Ruvain, the tribe of Rudin, its flag was dyed red, like the color of Odem, which was one of the stones. And there there was an image of a certain type of dudaim, certain type of plant. On Shimon's flag was dyed green. And there was the city of Shechem was depicted on that flag. Levi, Barekes, Shimon I should have said was Pidda, Barekes is the third stone on Aaron's breastplate. And his flag was dyed one-third white, one-third black, and one-third red. And on it was the image of the flag was the Urim Vatumim was depicted. Literally means lights and perfections. Where the God's sacred name was, uh, was uh, written, and it was part of the Cheshen as well, the breastplate. Okay. Next, Yehuda. Stone was Nopech, and the color of his flag was blue like the sky, and the image there was a lion. Yisachar, corresponding to Sapir, his flag was dyed semi black, similar to Kachal to the Sapir, and there the image was sun and moon. Zvulam. The stone was Yalom, the color of the flag was white. And upon a ship was depicted upon that, the image. Dun. The color was Leshem, the color was semi black, similar to Sapir. And there was a serpent was depicted. Next, Naphtali. Sheva, this the stone was Sheva. Color was neither white nor black, but rather a combination of black and white. And there the image was of a hind, a hind type of deer. Okay, we're up to uh, God. God was. Achlama, and the color was similar to the color of clear wine, redness, but not so pronounced. And there the image was a camp, like a military camp. Usher, the color of flag was similar to the color of a precious stone with which women adorn themselves. That's how the Medrash puts it. Which is Tarshish. It's like the, the color of the sea. And there the image was an olive tree. Okay. Yosef, which includes both Ephraim and Menashe, Shoham, the color was ex- exceedingly black, and there was an image of the land of Egypt to represent the two leaders of Ephraim and Menashe that were born in Egypt. Specifically, on the flag of Ephraim was an axe, and the flag of Menashe was the aim, like it's more of a um, like a bull. And finally, Binyamin. Binyamin was Yash, Yashpeh. The color was the, was the color of all the tribes 
because it's a combination of all the 12 colors. And in his was a wolf. That's how the Medrash explains it. As I'm reading it, I'm thinking it's fascinating that probably worthwhile to, at some point, do a project and explain all these 12 in context of what they mean personally to us, the colors, the images. It could be done visually. Just a thought. Maybe some of you may want to consider it. Maybe it's for a future creative submission in our, in our annual contest. We'll see. Okay. With that, let's move to the next subject. And that is some follow-up. We spoke about increasing in unity and love, especially in context of what happened in Miran, the great tragedy. And in general, whenever there's any challenges, crisis in Israel, and other challenges we've been facing and are facing, that always guaranteed thing we must all do is love and unity, to increase in love and unity, which is the container for all blessings. So someone wrote the following. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Following the Moron tragedy, you touched upon how unity and obviously soul were the next steps for what the Yidin should be occupied with now. How can this become our reality in a, micro, in a macro sense for the entire Jewish people, and how about on an individual level as well? What can we do to improve the situation if we are not community leaders? Thank you. I, I believe I made this point, and it's critical to make. Whoever and wherever you may be, you, have, you control the destiny of your life, of your own personal life, and your immediate circle, which is your family, and perhaps your friends and those in your sphere of influence. But starting with yourself, we do not need to wait for community leaders or any type of committee or any larger effort. Love and unity begins in you, inside your heart, how you treat others, the initiatives you take, the things you do. And you have the power, as the Rambam says, with one good deed, one good word, with one good thought, to tip the scales and bring tshuva tzolah, which is redemption and salvation to you and to the entire world. That's the power of an individual. That we must begin, because if we start waiting until others are doing, and when the leaders will come together, and they'll come up with a plan, God bless them, and when they do, they do. But we cannot wait. Especially today, grassroots has such power, because it has that ripple effect, especially if you get friends and your sphere of influence involved, Everybody has friends. We're only a few degrees of separation apart. And you can reach millions and millions of people, especially with technology today. But even without that, just start with yourself. That's the key to everything. Everything starts with one person doing and shifting and adding and increasing in love and unity. In Avas Yisrael and Ahdus Yisrael. Now, if you're in a position of influence, by all means, use that as well. If you have influence on someone who has influence, but do not wait, and responsibility begins right here. That's how the Torah looks at people. When we stood a mountain Torah, even though there were millions of people, everyone heard God speak just to them. That's why it's all Lashon Yachid. Anoichi Hashem I am your God. In Hebrew, 
When you speak to a group, it should have said, Anechi Hashem Elekeichem. I am your God, plural. Meaning plural, the people. Kabed Esavicha, not Esavichem. Signev, not Signevu. It's not written in the plural, says the Medrash, because everyone heard it to me. Because the responsibility is you. Like the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin, Chayiv Adam Lemer, a person is responsible to say, that the whole world was created because of me. Not an arrogance or self-centeredness, but responsibility. Because you have the ability to save a life that's just saving a world. And that in the broad sense of the word, every good deed we do, especially in the context of love and unity. And yes, this is a good opportunity to reiterate it. It can be stated, overstated. The importance of our Ardus, despite being diverse, having that harmony, the Shalom, the peace that is the greatest bracha. God did not find any keli to contain a blessing except shalom, which is more than just absence of war, true harmony. So I'm glad you bring that up. Okay. We also spoke about the rise of anti-Semitic attacks. So someone writes about ongoing hate crimes. I feel like we Jews are suffering so much from anti-Semitic attacks is because we let ourselves become abused abused. They know that we won't fight back, so they take advantage of that. I know we aren't supposed to, to act like aren't supposed to act like them, but maybe it's time to start to fight back. So when they think of doing an attack, they will think twice before. Okay. And another way someone voiced it was this way that um, is it time to start fighting back? Well look, the Tata approach has always been we're not fighters. But in self-defense, we do whatever it takes. As I mentioned, Yaakov prepared to confront Esau. He davened, he prayed, he prepared a bribe to appease him, and he prepared for war. No, we cannot see us be seen as weak and defenseless. We have to do everything possible. Do we go to war initially? Only if it's necessary to prevent something. So by all means, we have to demonstrate strength. But we don't have to become like them because we're not violent people and we're not warriors and we're not looking to fight. We're looking to live in peace. So it's very different when you think of it that way. It says you go out to war because it's not you. You go out to war, to wage war. And you're always above the enemy. You're not on their level. Never stoop to that level. But should they know that we have strength? Absolutely. To protect ourselves and also to defend ourselves and do whatever it takes. Just necess- not necessarily, especially the Rebbe's approach, is to create aggressive bands that go out there. Do we need a shmirah? Yes, we have shmirah, we have security, we have different ways to protect ourselves. And with all, not everybody know exactly that. Israel, for example, is a good example. They don't wait and stand weakly. But everyone knows the strong army and they will react. But even when they do, they react with compassion, which some criticize even. But that's another discussion, not for now. Okay. In response to your talk, will there ever be peace in the Middle East? Speaking about peace in the Middle East, Sasson writes, Hi, this is a reaction to your discussion about will there ever be peace in the Middle East. We lived in Israel for the 91 Scud War, during the 91, 1991 Scud War, when Iraq was shooting Scuds at Saddam Hussein at Israel. People in Chutzlar, it's outside of Israel, have no idea what it's like to have the sirens go off while you're sleeping and run to a miklat, to a shelter. The fear can destroy lives by, just by itself. The idea of a two-step peace, or maybe mean a two-state solution, 
first strength and then education, I think, will only be when Mashiach is here. Or referring to what I said. First strength and then education, I think, will only be when Mashiach is here. But the strength part, most of us behave, most of us believe to go in and take care of the problem. If you cannot abide by the laws, there are consequences. I know you remember Mayor Kahana, he wanted to give each of them $20,000 and send them away. Hindsight is always 2020. The only problem with war is what people is that people die. If we could find a solution without harming any of the Jews, it would be great. Thank you for all your wonderful shiurim. So inspirational, it keeps me going. Be well. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Well, briefly, you know, the Rebbe's approach of versus Mayor Kahana was also out of strength, but the Rebbe did not believe in going with any aggression, and with doing anything in a way that violated or went against the government but as an incentive in a peaceful way to create peace, the Rebbe was all for it. But again, that's another discussion, but I thank you for your comments. Okay. You stated last week in episode 355 that the Rebbe was in favor of a one-state solution. Can you please expound on this? Well, the Rebbe never used that word. He was definitely against the two-state solution, which means basically giving part of Israel to the Palestinians. By the Rebbe, this was a security issue you have a little sliver of land, and it's, it's a danger. You see, when the Aza was given to, the, to them, what happened? It became a launch pad, essentially, to attack Israel every time they like, with missiles. So that was the Rebbe's against. What means one state? The Jewish people should continue to hold strong, and strength will bring peace. That was the Rebbe's position. I spoke about it, and uh, just reiterating a bit what I said, but that was the key emphasis. Okay. Another follow-up. You spoke about 12th of Sivan last week. The seventh day of Shavuos corresponds to the seventh day of Sukkot and Pesach. It's the story with the Rebbe Rashab and the Friedrich Rebbe. Eight days after Shavuos, I would like to add, is Rab Levik and Rebbe Tzachana's anniversary. That's a day later, eight days after Shavuos. Eight days of Sukkot is Shemini the day the Yidden, the Jews, were treasured by Hashem, and Akofis, the dancing of Simchus Torah. Eighth day of Pesach, Mashiach Suda, Mashiach's meal outside of Israel. Please comment on connection to Gula, the seventh generation. Well, we know the connection of seven and eight. Seven is the end of a cycle. Eight is, is a transcendent dimension, Shemir Sahekev, as the Rajba writes, meaning it's a type of trend, this was the language of Chassidah, Sev of Kalaman. When the Rebbe speaks about Geula, Shvi, the, the Deira Shvi, and of course Elif Shvi, the seventh millennia is this millennium of Mashiach. Eight is already the dimension of Mashiach itself that goes beyond the cycle of seven. That's the general explanation. Relating it to these special days, obviously we can speculate. I, I quoted the story with the Rebbe Rashab. This is our own thought, that the day of the, of the anniversary, which of course would lead to the birth of the Rebbe, is on the eighth day after Shavuos. So I'm sure you can connect it in that sense. The Rebbe does speak Yudalaf Nisan. 11 is also similar. 10 is the end of a cycle. 11 is a transcendent dimension. Okay. Now that cities are opening up, many have taken the vaccine. Can we say that is a sign of the imminent Geula? As you know, I'm always wary of signs. The Rebbe said the Geula is upon us. We're at the threshold and gave different examples of signs with the technology, the cha- political changes, the fall of the Soviet Union, the Iraq war, the different things. So that's the Rebbe speaking. 
So of course you can find in all events and current events things that ratify and that support and indicate on the Google is coming. Some people saw COVID as a wake-up call. Now that slowly it's being conquered or controlled or slowly changing, is, is it a good thing? Of course it's a good thing. And no doubt we're closer to the Gula. But I don't know if I want to associate any particular event and say this is a sign. Because everything is a sign. Whether it's the negative, the setback, or it's the positive news. So that's how I'd respond to that. At the same time, when we look at all the events going on, the different upheavals and disruptions that have happened in the last year, especially lately in Israel and Israel. So we always know that a disruption is always meant to bring a greater revelation. So we have to say that we have to use it. And that's the most important point. Not so much whether we're finding signs. What does it do to us? Our actions. Because it's all about what are you going to do. If, you, if it motivates you, then to do something, to change your life, to improve your life, to improve the life of others, then by all means, like the Rebbe Rashab said, he didn't like when people made, said kinds of pshetlach, commentary in Tanya. Learn Tanya as it says, without additional commentary. But if it adds a year of Shemayim, he didn't mind. In other words, it comes down to action. If you find something that's a sign and just talk about it, then just talk. But if it leads to action that we increase in our learning Geula Mashiach, and are acting on living by it, living with unity, with Avas Yisrael, Ardas Yisrael, increasing in Torah Mitzvahs, in teaching and spreading Chassidus, and Yiddishkeit, teaching people about the seven Noahide laws, then by all means. Okay. Now, since Chavches Nissen, which was 30 years from the famous Sicha, that emotional plea of the Rebbe, do everything you can, and now we're coming slowly to the 80-year, 80th anniversary of 28th of Sivan. Three months later is 28th of Sivan when the Rebbe and the Rebbe came to America. So I've been talking about Mashiach because many questions have come in, and I want to just continue that, cover a few more questions. So one question, is Mashiach an actual human being? That's what one person asked. Or is Mashiach just a concept representing an era of peace and prosperity? The answer is unequivocally a human being, Rambam Paskins. In the Gemara, there is a question, and that's a controversial Gemara, and actually the person who says that there won't be a person is actually completely dismissed, and yet the Gemara writes it, but that's not for here. The Rambam Paskins, which is halacha, there will be a human being from the house of Beis David, the Beis David, from the house of David. So that's clearly a human being, just like Moshe Rabbeinu was a human being, Gael Rishon, who led the Jews out of Mitzrayim. There'll be a human being who leads the Jews out of this Golos. Can Mashiach be a woman? Well, Ishma Beis David, a Melech, so Befeir is not a woman. This has nothing to do with any type of uh, negation of what a woman's role is. Mashiach will have a wife, and they'll be equal partners. Different roles. Same reason that a man is primarily is a king. Even though you have a queen, you've had queens, but they were the queen, they were a support to the husband, and they were partners with him. Kvud the basmelech penima, the honor, glory of the princess, of the queen, is internal, and is the man that is more on the outer level, that type of leader. And each have their particular role, to make it clear that there's nothing negative about it. 
Another question regarding Mashiach. Will our service to Hashem be more similar to the temple periods in Jewish history or shul services these days? When Mashiach comes, when the third Beis Amidash is brought down, will our service to Hashem be like in the Beis Amidash, the first and second Beis Amidash, or will it be like we do today? And what form will be the offerings? Well, we know that tefillah prayer has become karbonus tiknum. It came to be in place of the offerings. When Mashiach comes, you'll have actual offerings. So generally speaking, the offerings also came with certain kavanas and intentions. So I'm sure that it'll also come with certain, certain statements or certain words being said. Will we have the full tefillah? I have not seen it discussed directly, even though I'm sure there's farm that talk about it, but most likely yes. Because in general, we don't diminish anything. And a prayer, Aveda Shebelev, prayer from the heart, will be coupled with. It will not replace karbonus, because karbonus will be there, but they will have their own role. So even if a person isn't bringing an offering, they still, we know there's a mitzvah to speak to God when you have a need. So loss of love, will there be needs like we have now? But there may be needs, our spiritual needs, or needs to grow in our study and in our service and so on. That's how I would answer that. Will Mashiach comes, will 770 be transported to Israel and become the third base Amikdash? Well, the Gemara says that all shuls will be transported to Eretz Yisrael. So 770 is included. Regarding the third base Amikdash, that's a little more complicated. There's the famous Sikha called Kuntus Beis Rabbeinu Shebebovel, that forced Beis Rabbeinu Shebebovel, that the house of our teacher in Bovel and Golis, is compared to the Beis Amigdash. So first of all, every shul is compared to Amigdash Ma'at, that's the Pasuk, is considered a mini-sanctuary. 770 being the base of the Nasi Hador, for sure has more greater status. Whether it will be the Beis Amigdash, we know the Beis Amigdash is going to come from heaven. Will it connect with it? Yes, spiritually. Does that mean the physical building of the Beis Amigdash is going to look like 770? We know the Yechaskel and the Svarim and Sechtemidus and the Hilchas Beis Abchir talks about what the Beis Amidish is going to look like. So you have to be careful when you make that equation. It's more of a definitely connection because every time a Jew davens in any shul, especially in Beis Rabbeinu above all, like 770, there's a certain special power to that. And that power that we davened in these days, especially for Golis, for Gula, from getting out of Golis, and we face toward Yerushalayim. So for sure, all of that will be elevated. And that's what the Gemara says, that all the shuls will be moved there. Now the question is, is the physical shul, it's actual, every room of it, or the bricks? In concept, for sure. The physical is already a discussion. Because remember, the walls do saturate, are saturated with holiness when we daven and we learn in a Beis HaKnesses and Beis HaMedish. So there could also be an element of physicality that will move over. That's the general explanation. Okay. Now, there's a whole bunch of questions on Tchis HaMesim, but I'll reserve that for a later episode. Let's go to Chassidus' question, and then we'll do the essays. Chassidus' question is like this. Can a Neshama be in two places at once? And to spell it out a little more, many... Months ago, in episode 303, you said about Eliyahu that a Neshamba Beguf can't be in two places at once. I'll explain in a moment. There is a story with the Rebbe Rashab and an Aguna. Aguna is someone, a bound woman whose husband does not give her a get or they don't know where the husband is, where she saw him in a train station, the Aguna, 
So the Rebbe Rashab, although the Shamish said he never left Lubavitch. There's also a story I don't have a source for about people seeing the Rebbe visiting graves in Russia after Chavzai Nader. Please explain. Okay. So first of all, Kel Barama, Chassidus brings from a Kabbalah Sefer, where it talks about Elyonovi. We hear that Elyonovi comes to every bris. We also say he comes to every seder. At the same time, Elyonov says in Zohar, I couldn't come to you directly because I was saving Rabbi Benunah Saba. So it seems like a contradiction there. Here it seems to be in many places at once. So the answer is Neshama Beguf or not Neshama Beguf? Neshama Beguf, the soul bound to the body can only be in one place. That's the way God made it. When you talk about Neshama without a Guf, so the Neshama, Ruchnius, can be in different places. So it all comes down to the level of manifestation of that, that Neshama. When we say the Neshama is of, let's say, uh, our ancestors or parents and grandparents come to Achupa. It's not Neshama Beguf. It's Neshama Sadeh. So there are different ways. The Rebbe once in a Fabrengen speaking about Manishtana Laila Zedek, meaning we say Tatech Velba Defreng Nefir Kashas. My father, father, I will ask the four questions. The Rebbe says, everyone asks it, even someone's father is already in heaven, even though we know what kind of Yegiya effort, what kind of Tirch it is, bother it is for Neshama to have to come down when you call upon him. The Rebbe was apparently talking about the Rabbeim saying Tate. You can see with the emotion that the Rebbe describes it. So does that mean an Neshama Beguf? But still, invoking and drawing an Neshama down is a matter of, a, of an effort, and it takes work, and it's, it's, it's not uh, something to be taken for granted. So basically, it's about essentially having the different levels of uh, how much the soul manifests. In a body, it, meaning it's coming at this time and space, and that's the purpose. If it's without a body, it's not coming into the time and space as we know it, but it's still here with us, spiritually within our time and space. And then there are, of course, levels within the Neshama right now is also here, even though Elyon Novi, where is he if not here? But you can't say here because it's not that special moment when we know the Yoh makes his presence felt more. And high, we don't see it because there's no body. But the Ruchnis, it means it's there more and there's something that's going to have an impact on our lives. Okay. Let's now go over to the 24th place winners of the 6th annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest. So we've been doing, we've been doing every week for the English essay, the Hebrew essay for men, the Hebrew essay for women, and the creative track. So the, the, the essay in English, Elevated Sleep. Rina Pinson, age 19, student, Beishana, Tzvah Seminary, hometown Los Angeles, California. I think it's a very interesting, creative essay. I enjoyed it. And very illuminating. Speaking about, first talks about herself, that she doesn't find it difficult to sleep at times. But then talks about the virtues of sleep, al-pichsidis. And the shaman goes up and gets refreshed and reinvigorated from the fountains of the well and fountains, the spiritual wells of life above. And other things that sleep in chsidis that are a very interesting compendium they come away with a type of almost like spiritualizing and refining our very sleep. And sleep is not just a material thing that a body needs to do. So well worth reading. Thank you for that. The essay in Hebrew, Amen, is Avis Yisrael, Interaktia Anushis Bashkof Echsidis, Avis Yisrael, the love of Yisrael, the love of another Jew. The interaction, social interaction between people from the perspective of Chassidus by Leo Lichstein, a student from Tel Aviv, Israel. And here too, 
takes uh, the Pedeklamet Beis and makes a contrast, a study of how the human, of the secular world looks at us, that we may be interacting, but we're still separate entities. Now the Alter Rebbe really sees us as one entity that was divided. Goes through the different language in Tanya and explaining obviously Yisrael in the context of a social a social uh, interaction, social, basically Hasidic sociology, if you wish. And it's very insightful in that sense. Then finally, the essay in Hebrew, Women, is Mrs. Nechamed Dina Kozlovsky, Kvach about Israel, self-control, mind over heart, as a, a, a method of intervention dealing with addiction. So using Mayak Shalat Alev and concentrating of how people deal with addiction when they give in and how they can exercise that self-control in personal, in personal life. Also well done, practical. And finally, the creative track. Every Jew is a diamond that needs to be refined. Sketchbook. It's a sketch of the Rebbe and a diamond, referring to the famous story that the Rebbe said that every Jew is a diamond. But he also explains that needs to be refined, meaning you need to reveal it. This is by David Nakach. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Age 25. Les Fertes France. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Anyway, from France, some city in France. Now you can find all these essays. The meaningful at chassidusapply.com, you can find the English and the creative submissions. The Hebrew ones are diralo.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. And with that, we conclude this episode 356 of My Life Chassidus Applied. We're here Sundays, every Sunday, except when it's a holiday, from 8 to 9 p.m. It's always an honor and a pleasure. May our efforts in Yafusa As we conclude, we come to the conclusion. Well, we get closer to the conclusion of the month of Sivan. We're going to go into the month of Tammuz. We'll talk about that next week. And Chavches even coming up, 50, 80 years from when the Rebbe came to America, 50, 30 years from when the Rebbe gave out the Kuntus Kavitz Chavches Sivan, which was 50 years from when he came to America, 1941. We were talking about that. Everyone have a very good week, a healthy week, a week, and may we finally merit to the Geula through our efforts of Yafutsu Menasech Chutzah. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life. Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.